if you are uh, just joining us this morning, we have been making our way through the book of Acts, and last week we looked at uh, Paul and Barnabas in Iconium, and things went well in some ways and not so well in other ways. They're kind of chased out of the city and make their way uh, to Lystra, and this morning we're going to pick up where we left off, Acts chapter 14, verse 8, and at least start uh, in the time in Lystra. Well, we won't probably make it all the way through, but I think there's uh, plenty for us to see here in the first 10 verses. So I will uh, read uh, Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18. If you would read with me, the word of the Lord says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, And we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good good by giving you rains from the heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your name is great and greatly to be praised. And Lord, uh, even as we sing together and long for uh, the chorus of heaven, Lord, we pray that you would use our time in your word this morning to uh, equip our hearts uh, to serve you today and tomorrow and every day the Lord tarries. Lord, we pray that uh, you would use us in this time uh, to refine one another, to press each other towards Christ's likeness, and God, to call those who do not yet know you uh, to faith in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would continue to build your church in us and through us for your glory. And God, we pray that we would uh, be increasingly awestruck uh, by your power at work in and through us. Lord, we pray that our time now in your word uh, would feed our souls. God, that our hearts would be humble and that we would be subject to your word, both in mind and in spirit, 
and that it would refine us for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. I, uh, I think uh, there's a, a, quite a bit that happens in this, uh, at least in the opening section of the ministry in Lystra here, and I think uh, if you're, you're Paul and Barnabas, right, you can't walk through what they walk through and think, yeah, this is a lot like Jerusalem, right? There's some pretty big differences, uh, basically from this point forward in Acts, between like the way that audiences typically receive the preaching of the gospel and probably what they would have uh, experienced to this point, uh, is they're getting further and further away from Judea, and as they move away from Judea, there are fewer and fewer Jewish people in the cities that they're going to. And so, uh, when the text opens this morning, Luke kind of walks through uh, briefly a setup that seems a lot like, uh, in some ways, what uh, we saw Peter and John encounter in Acts chapter 3. You remember at the gate called Beautiful, they walk into the temple court, and there is a man who is lame from birth, and they heal the guy, and it gives Peter the opportunity to preach a sermon about the grace of Christ in the temple court, and our, our text this morning seems kind of the same way, at least at first. Uh, they get to Lystra, there is no synagogue in Lystra, so rather than starting in the synagogue like they did in Iconium, uh, they're apparently just in the marketplace and uh, begin preaching. And as they're there preaching, there is a man who was crippled from birth, never able to walk. And I, again, I'd say that the reason the scriptures seem to, to point this out is uh, this is miraculous, right? This isn't somebody who was unable to walk because they had a bad ankle sprain and he just happened to get better while Paul was preaching this sermon. This was a guy that had never been able to walk and everyone in town knew that he had never been able to walk because they'd seen him begging. And so this man is listening to Paul preach, and Paul, looking at him, sees that he has faith to be made well. And I don't really know uh, exactly, Luke doesn't explain uh, what the nature of Paul's seeing is here. You know, is, uh, if is there a facial expression that somebody makes when they have faith to be made well? I don't, I don't know, but uh, I, I suspect what happens is the Spirit gives Paul some prompting here, that Paul sees something by the power of the Spirit, that like this is the, the door that the Lord is opening for me for the progress of the gospel here. And so uh, Paul, uh, seizing on that prompting, uh, cries out, uh, stand upright on your feet to this guy that everyone knows cannot walk. And right, I think that says something about the nature of uh, Paul's faith in the Lord, right? Like talk about a high stakes gamble. Uh, if you say stand upright and walk and the guy says, I can't stand up, I have never been able to stand up, and then what, is, what does that mean? But Paul, with faith that the Lord would work, calls for this man to stand up and he jumps up. Uh, he starts walking around, and everyone is absolutely amazed about what they've just witnessed. And uh, while I think it's safe to say that uh, Paul and Barnabas didn't know Laocoonian, sorry, that's a tough one, uh, 
they were preaching in Greek, uh, as the crowd sees what happens and uh, responds, right, it's important to note that their response is in their native tongue, Lyakaonian, right? They don't, uh, Paul and Barnabas at this point, I think we have to say, don't really understand entirely what's happening in the crowd other than they are shocked by the miracle that they just witnessed. And so the crowd uh, very quickly uh, decides that Paul and Barnabas are gods incarnate, that they have uh, come to Lystra, and uh, in fact, they aren't just any gods, but they are Zeus and Hermes. Uh, Hermes is uh, son of Zeus, yeah, like son of Zeus, uh, and the chief speaker of the gods, the messenger of the gods. And probably the reason that they uh, suspect Paul and Hermes, or uh, Paul and Barnabas, to be Zeus and Hermes. Ovid tells us, a Roman poet tells us that uh, in, uh, in Phrygia, the, the province just to the west of the province that they're in, uh, Ovid says that uh, there was a, a story that had been around for a long time that a Zeus and Hermes did visit this province and uh, no one would receive them, no one would give them hospitality and uh, except for one old couple who gave them hospitality. And uh, Zeus and Hermes, in anger or in response, uh, asked the old couple, what would you like done? And uh, Zeus and Hermes uh, transformed their house into a temple and appointed this old couple as priests and then destroyed the houses of everyone else in the community that refused to receive them. Right? So there's this myth about uh, Zeus and Hermes, sometimes they come, and if they come, you better be ready to receive them. And so I think it's probably safe to assume that they're thinking, hey, this is happening again, and we're not going to be caught off guard like last time. This is Zeus and Hermes. Let's, uh, let's welcome them. Let's celebrate this. And so the priest of Zeus comes out ready to make an offering to them. And right at this point, Paul and Barnabas begin to realize uh, like what is happening here, uh, at least maybe in part, perhaps the, the lame man is cueing them in or translating for them, but, uh, or maybe they just pick up on it once they realize the priest of Zeus is coming out with oxen and garlands. Right? They would have known if you see an oxen with a woolen garden, garland he's about to be offered to Zeus. And so Paul and Barnabas react immediately when they recognize what's going on. They tear their garments and they rush out into the ground. Their, their response is almost exactly the opposite of Herod Agrippa's response in chapter 12. Remember, Herod Agrippa was being uh, praised as a, something of a divine and he welcomes the praise and the Lord judges him for it. Uh, when Paul and Barnabas are praised as uh, divine, <laughs> they, they react in a very different way. Uh, why are you doing this? We are, we're people just like you. We're, we're no different than you are. But we bring you good news, the greatest of news, uh, and it starts with the fact that you should turn away from this idolatry that you're engaging in 
right now. Everything about your reaction to what's just happened is wrong. Turn away from this. You need to turn away from this and to the living God. And they, and they cite Exodus 20.11 here. It, uh, well, almost exactly. Made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Right? They start with creation and call them to believe in the God of creation. They go on to explain that you, you might not know of Him. He's tolerated this idolatry in years that have passed. Right? He, uh, he hasn't immediately judged you for what you've done in the years past, but now is the time where you learn who this God is. And even as He's tolerated this in the past without immediately judging for Him, judging you for it, you should recognize who He is. Right? His work isn't just evident in the act of creation, but it's continually evident in His acts of providential care. That He sends rain, that He allows the crops to grow, that He puts food on our table, even in the fact that He gives us cause for joy. He gives us food. God's care for us is evident in all of these things. And they, they start to build, uh, I think, a pretty consistent witness. And this pattern is going to hold basically through the rest of the book of Acts. And I think it's probably worth uh, noting for us because our, our culture uh, probably has more, a lot more similarity to Roman culture than it does to Jewish culture. Right? The way that they're preaching the gospel uh, is helpful for us in a lot of ways. And so it's Stop for a second here and just, and just make uh, explicit a few things uh, about this, right? Like we'll see it even, even more significantly in Acts chapter 17. Paul very fully develops this argument in Romans chapters 1 and 2. But uh, here, I think I would point out that to this point in the book of Acts, uh, pretty much every presentation of the gospel has either started with Abraham or with Israel's time in Egypt. And they always kind of build the identity of, uh, or build out the gospel on the identity of uh, the basis of the Jews' identity as God's chosen people. But here, really for the first time, they're walking into a, like a through and through heathen place, right? Uh, there isn't a synagogue in the city. There's no like prior instruction about who God is or what God expects of His people. They're walking into a place where uh, people really don't understand God at all. And they start where the Bible starts. They start with creation. And I would, I think, suggest to you that uh, as, as individuals, probably oftentimes when the Lord gives us opportunity to share the gospel that uh, beginning with creation is probably where we should start. Uh, number one, I think uh, it's uh, an incredibly compelling argument. Uh, but uh, number two, and probably more importantly, I would uh, suggest to you that uh, one thing that the Bible teaches very clearly that's very much out of step with our culture is that God has a moral ownership over the world. 
God gets to say what's right and wrong. And we're living in a culture where uh, a mantra is, no one has the, tell me, has the ability to tell me what's right or wrong. I'm the one who determines what's right or wrong. And so when we're preaching the gospel to people who do not believe that anyone else, even God himself, if there is one, has the authority to say what's right or wrong, we probably need to start with the fact that God created the world, and that's why God has moral ownership of the world. That God very much has the uh, right to call a sin a sin. He is the creator of all things. I think uh, without establishing that fact, it's, it's really hard to build out to the gospel. And for that reason, I think uh, an, an attack on... Uh, God as the God of creation is an undermining of the gospel. Uh, but moreover, I think uh, they're making the point that uh, in daily life you can see further evidence of God's goodness, right? There, he, he's not just saying God has the right to, to do with the world what he wants to do with the world, but uh, God's power and God's wisdom are evident, God's moral orientation are all evident in creation, but God's goodness is evident in the way that God providentially cares for the world. And so they're, they're using what these people do know or what these people have been able to observe to extrapolate observations about who God is. And, <coughs> excuse me, uh, even as they do this, uh, the crowd's not so sure. They still struggle to restrain the crowd from offering sacrifices to them. And <clears throat> you would like to think, uh, you know, everywhere uh, Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel, everybody responds positively, but uh, Luke is giving us uh, an unvarnished account of what actually happened. That the The impulse to idolatry in this crowd is still really, really strong. And in the overarching narrative of Acts, I think it, it demonstrates that there are real challenges to, uh, to ministry to Gentiles that didn't exist in ministry to Jews, right? That uh, Paul and Barnabas are confronting new challenges here. But, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to stop at this point uh, in the morning uh, is I think that I think that there is something probably we all need to hear, and I suspect that this is this is as good a place as any to say it. I guess uh, you read a text like this, and I don't I don't know about you. I guess for me, it's kind of easy. To like to scoff a bit, right? Like uh, ancient people, so silly, like offering bulls to Zeus and like this idolatry. That's it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, like this, this is definitely not uh, reality, and and it, it's so transparently idolatry. Like, how could anybody really believe that, right? Like. And I 
I think that the fact that that, uh, would, that thought would rest in my mind uh, demonstrates the fact that the mind, my mind doesn't really know my heart all that well. Uh, even as I laugh at the idolatry of others, like I routinely uh, commit the same sin in a, in a slightly different way. Right? Uh, for instance, uh, maybe you're, you're 17 and uh, you're thinking about all the things you can start doing in life once you're finally able to get out of school and start trading your time for some real money. Uh, or maybe you're 64 and you're thinking about what it's going to be like when you can finally start trading your money for some time. Uh, right? Like, uh, we're all in different places in, in one way or another. But uh, I think if, if we carefully consider uh, the things that occupy our hearts and our minds almost all of the time, we will find we are just as guilty of idolatry as any of those people were. Following Christ isn't like briefly looking away from an idol and saying, okay, Jesus, I think we're good now, and then turning right back to the idol. Turning towards Christ is turning away from the idol and marching in the exact opposite direction, towards Jesus Christ. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you have kids and you're in the thick of it. I think a, a, a real problem for us, uh, a real problem for us is I think there's a difference between well-stewarding the little souls that the Lord has given us and making them the center of our lives. I, I had several conversations this week. I had two stand out. Uh, it seems like uh, parenting can be our highest calling or one of the highest callings that the Lord can give us, the, a way to, to maximally impact a soul for Christ. Or uh, we, can, we can let our children's lives, our children's happiness, youth sports, achievements, we can let our children dominate our lives in a way that is essentially idolatry. When, when uh, our identity is more wrapped up in our children than who Jesus is, we're on very dangerous ground. I think it's, it's vain. It's, it's idol worship. Turn to Christ. Turn in the opposite direction. Don't, don't allow uh, anything, any part of where we are in the world or where our station is to become your identity. Don't let anything be your identity other than Jesus Christ. And I, wanna, I want you to listen carefully. In, in fact, I, I wrote this down because I want to be very careful about how I say this. 
I'm not saying it's wrong for any of us to plan a career. I'm certainly not saying that it's wrong for us to prepare for retirement. I'm not saying that it's wrong to do youth sports. But I am suggesting to you that the way that we are doing these things is allowing for the cares of this present world to dominate our thoughts, to own our lives. And I think it it betrays the fact that uh, we can chuckle about uh, ancient idols and at the same time our hearts are worshiping idols of our own making. And that's an affront to God. Absolutely. And, and we need to see it for what it really is. And You either have to be killing the sin or the sin will kill you. And if you're sitting there thinking, good, somebody needed to say that to those people. <laughs> you haven't sniffed it out in your own heart already, and it's probably poisoning the very well of joy and hope and peace that Jesus Christ gives. We're all guilty. So, brothers, sisters, please, Honestly and humbly, very much knowing that I need to do the same. I was uh, confronted with my own selfishness as an idol in a conversation with my wife this very week. I'm pleading with you to honestly and humbly talk to each other. Don't just think about it. Talk to each other this week. Talk to each other about the degree to which your lives are filled with the pursuit of vanity. Talk to your small group. Talk to your spouse. Talk to your parents. Call me. But talk to somebody about this. The last thing I think any of us should want is to, to continue thrashing around on the barbed wire of the American dream. It's only going to further entangle us, further hurt us, further corrupt us. It's vanity, beginning to end. And, and to the extent that Acts is about the progress of the gospel in uh, communities that don't yet know Jesus Christ, I think that this problem, probably more than any other problem, is perhaps what's tarnishing the witness of the church. You know, why aren't people in the community asking, what's different about you? It, It might be because there's not much different about us, or at least apparently not. If we're worshiping in the, at the same idols that everybody else is, of course they're not going to ask us, what is different about you? We don't seem all that different. And, and I hope you are convicted. I, I hope you are bitterly convicted about the ways in which sin is evident in your life. And honestly, I don't particularly mind if you're upset with me for pointing it out. In fact, I kind of hope you are.
I, I think uh, in love, I don't want to tell you that everything's okay, life's okay, you're fine, just keep going. Right? In love, I want to tell you that your gaze on Christ has, has left Christ far too often. Right? Your gaze has left Christ far too often. Or maybe for some of you, for far too long. Repent. We, we serve a God who graciously forgives all sin just to repent of it. Whether you're repenting of it for the first time or the millionth time, repent of it and trust in God's grace through Christ. It, and, and this grace, uh, it was bought at an awful price. And so uh, this morning, I want to celebrate this grace and, and celebrate the price of this grace together. I think <clears throat> even as uh, even as we might uh, regret the ways that idolatry is evident in our life, I think we can be comforted by the fact that God will graciously forgive anyone who comes to Him in faith. And so, uh, if I could get uh, servers to come forward. <clears throat>